Hi, and welcome to the Trail to Austin, the place where you get to meet the people of Austin and find out how they became the people of Austin. I'm with my co-host, as usual, Joel McCall. Hello, from Austin. Yes, at our normal location, the New World Deli. 41st in Guadalupe. Come on down. Yeah, so um, 75 degrees in February. <laughs> I'm wearing shorts. I don't know about the rest of the world. Yeah, so... Anyway, uh, we have our guest today uh, with us, um, and this is going to be interesting because he's uh, not only a singer-songwriter, but he has a little bit of a side gig, too, that he does that's kind of unusual for this venue. So, um, without further ado, I'd like to welcome David Hamburger. Hello. Nice to be here. Well, thanks for being here. That's, we're glad to have you. I'm not wearing shorts. Well... I've seen Not your everybody. legs. I've seen your legs, and I'm glad. Thank no, you. No, but I'm, I'm, I mean, <clears throat> I, I dress according to the season, not the actual weather. So if it's February, that's, that's called winter, where I come from. And also, I'm about to play a gig, and I don't work in shorts. So let's talk about where you came from. Uh, well, I'm from New England. Uh, I, came, I was born in a, in a suburb outside of Austin called Lexington, Massachusetts, and... Uh, that where the Minutemen were. That is when I, I worked. My summer job was actually working as a as a tour guide on the Lexington Common. So wow. I know an absurd amount of trivia about the five minute battle that took place there. <laughs> so, does uh, trivia last more than five minutes? Oh, don't get me started. I still remember most of it. The questionnaire to become a tour guide at age thirteen was a four hundred page single a four hundred. It was 400 single-space typewritten questions. You had to go to the Lexington Room at Cary Memorial Library on Mass Avenue in Lexington and research the answers yourself and then have a test. Oh, brutal. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so, yeah, there was, a, there was this, uh, this old man named, we, we, I don't even remember his, his name, we just called him The Rev. He was, he was a reverend at one of the churches, and he, was, he ran the guide program on the side, and he had created this, this test, and so that was how you, it was like, you know, the, the old, I, you know, like what they used to do for the civil service in China 2,000 years ago, all those questions, you know. Yeah. It was great. So did they let you dress up in costume? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was actually very much like the real Minutemen. If you wanted to get someone in your family to make you a costume, you got to wear one. Wow, so, that's awesome. Yeah, you got the <laughs> patterns and you went to the fabric shop and you made sure you got like, you know, things that would breathe because it was the summer and you were wearing like a frilly pirate blouse and a 13-button vest and a pair of knickers. And, it was and a, a tri-corner hat? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, basically, like, you got the first year, you just got a hat. And then if you want to do it, like, somebody at some point decided to get all authentic and make a costume. And then, of course, everybody had to, had to, <laughs> had to costume up. It was great. I can't imagine that being more fun for a 13-year-old than doing that. Man, it was better than manual labor. So I was into it. Well, you got to meet chicks. Uh, they were mostly in their 40s and history buffs from Indiana. <laughs> Which, you know... Nothing says hot. Yes. <laughs> I'm not... All due respect to all, all the categories I just covered, but as a 13-year-old, that was a bit of a miss. Yeah, I get that. <clears throat> so, um, how did you wind up uh, here in Austin? Well, it wasn't from being a tour guide. Uh, I moved to New York when I got out of college, uh, and I lived there for 14 years. And uh, one of the things I was doing in New York was session work because I played the dobro and the steel guitar. And so uh, somebody recommended me for a record session, and that turned out to be my wife's EP. So we met, uh, we met doing that and 
didn't, well, the way she describes it is we went on three first dates and then she moved to Texas. She's from here. No, she's from Houston and she moved, she moved back to Austin. And we stayed in touch and I came down to visit and she came back up to New York to visit and eventually it became a thing and I came down here for the summer and then I just never left. Did you wear shorts? I did that summer, but you know, people said, oh, this is the worst summer on record. I was like, this is the first summer I've had an apartment with air conditioning. <laughs> so if it gets hot, I'm just going home. No problem. Uh, well, you know, I forgot to ask, how did you transition from tour guide into musician? Oh, well, I mean, the, being a tour guide, that was, just, that was just a cushy summer job. I, uh, I had started playing music around the same time. Um, and so I played music all through high school and played music in college and majored in music but you know the kind of music that I play now was the music that I played for fun when I wasn't studying and I never thought it didn't occur to me till I was in my mid-20s that what I did goofing off was actually the most interesting thing I knew how to do uh, and so um, you know I was really lucky because uh, I went to a summer camp when I was 12 uh, this sort of hippie summer camp up in New Hampshire that a friend of the family was involved in and uh this was still the 70s, so they had a class in Clawhammer banjo. Cool. So <laughs> I learned. Bob Jones. Yeah, I learned to play Clawhammer banjo. Well, learned. I started to play Clawhammer banjo. And I came home and said, hey, can you get me a banjo? And my parents were like, maybe a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the same night, the night I came home from camp, my sister played me her, her new Beatles records, which she had just gotten. And so at that point, I was like, yeah, a guitar will be fine. I don't hear any banjo on Sgt. Pepper, so it works for me. So um, you have a little different style of playing. Um, you do the uh, finger picking, mm -hmm. obviously, yeah. which isn't, uh, you know, there's a lot of musicians that obviously don't do that. So what made you pick up that technique? Well, uh, I was really lucky because uh, as soon as I got a guitar, they sent me to uh, the community center for guitar lessons. And there was this lady there named Lucille Magliazzi, whose brothers were the car talk guys. No kidding. And she was wow. a huge, and you can tell from their, they're huge bluegrass fans, and so was she. And so my first three months of playing guitar, I learned to Travis pick, and I learned to play fiddle tunes. And none of my friends, learned, they all were learning like Smoke on the Water and Hendrix. And so on the one hand, I grew up a terrible freak as a musician. And on the other hand, like by the time I was 20, that turned out to be an incredible advantage. Because people would say, like, oh, can you show me how to finger pick? I'd be like, what, doesn't everybody do that? You know? And I learned slide guitar in college from a guy named Stephen Hinckley, who was, uh, I went to college thinking I was going to learn classical guitar. But what happened was, uh, every Thursday night, I would come downstairs from my guitar lesson, my classical guitar lesson, and this guy Stedman was there. He was the monitor for the building for Thursday nights. And he was this senior who... Uh, played slide guitar. He was a Russian major, but slide guitar was his thing. And so I would have a lesson playing classical guitar, which I was terrible at. And then I would come downstairs and I would play guitar with Stedman for about three hours and learn to play slide. So by the time I was 20, I could play slide, I could finger pick, I could do all these cool things. And uh, at the same time, just, you know, didn't know anything about Jimmy Page or any of that stuff, you know, just whew, right over my head. Well, that's, I mean, it's kind of funny because we naturally associate slide guitar with kind of the South, you know, and being in New England playing that. Oh, style. God. <laughs> well, well, so after, and after that, I learned to play the dobro and the steel guitar. So when I moved to Austin, my friends were like, oh, that's going to be perfect for you. The first gig I got here was a theater gig at the Zach Scott. 
So I went to I left New York and ended up playing in the pit for something, which was <laughs> really <laughs> super messed up all the way around. So, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's part of why. I mean, I was thinking about leaving New York for a while before I did, and Austin was on the short list because of the music. You know, I liked all the music that came from here, and you know, I had to sleep at the Wheel Records, and I mean, it was really. I mean, to go and see Bill Kirchen play, I and mean, he's not from here, but he's here now, and just to. I mean, the first thing I said when I got to talk to him was like, I have those Commander Cody records, you know, like that's what I listened to in my 20s in New York. So it's, you know, it's, it's nice to be here in that respect. So when did you come? You know, 2000. You come, 2000. 2000. Yeah, I'm coming up okay. on 20 years, which makes my head explode. Wow. Yeah, June 6th. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Yeah, so obviously you've seen a lot of changes since you've been here. <laughs> yeah, I, when people when I moved here and people complained about the traffic, I just laughed. I'm like, have you ever been on the BQE? And now I'm just like, yeah, it's terrible. I want to stay home. <laughs> I yeah. play this gig because it's five minutes from my house. There you go. And I'm still late. Uh, you're not late. I wasn't today. I won't be today, but sometimes I'm like just screaming into here at like, you know, 2.36 or whatever it is. Well, well that's the way it works, though. No, you don't have the pressure of planning ahead. Yeah, exactly. But it's one of my New Year's things to be. I had I, one time. The one time I was, I was on a, enough of a tour that there was a tour manager. Uh, the first thing he said the first day was, "If you're early, you're on time, and if you're on time, you're late." And we're all <laughs> like, "Ooh, this guy's not going to be a whole lot of fun." <laughs> <laughs> so you you've got another kind of side gig well I, I don't know that's a side gig but you have this other thing that you do which is super interesting to me with the um doing the commercials and the uh, documentary music um how'd you get involved with that well you know i've always had some kind of hustle going i actually sort of see the singer songwriter part of things as the side gig because that's never you know i had my sister's a painter my, my poor parents they got two artists you know and uh they were super cool about it, but, you know, for 30 years, my mom's been walking through the neighborhood and have friends go, how'd you end up with two artists? And she's like, what, I'm not creative? But, uh, so, you know, we talk about this all the time because I've always had a way to make a living as a musician, but not from being an artist per se. You know, my sister's a fine artist. She's a painter, a sculptor, uh, makes this really beautiful mixed media work. Um, and she's like, oh, you know, you make a living from your, from your, from your art. I'm like, no, I make a living from my craft. You know, like I make a living from being able to push notes around the way someone else might want me to uh, or explain how to do it to somebody else. You know, so, I mean, my whole M.O. was I just wanted not to have a real job, you know, and I didn't care what that meant. So since I've been the last time I had a real job, I was working as a copy editor at Moody's Investor Service when I was 22. Proofreading numbers. Wow. Annual rainfall in Kansas, 1985 to 1987. I mean, boring. So. Uh, basically, like as soon as I could get out of that kind of racket, I did. And so I started by teaching guitar lessons and then, you know, uh, started playing as a backup musician. I don't know if you know the singer-songwriter Freedy Johnston, but he was, he was in New York in the early, in the, in the mid-80s. And he had a kind of a hit in the 90s called Bad Reputation. and was on a major label for a while. I was, you know, dumb enough to get out before any of that happened. But I started playing as a backup guitar player. And then when I started playing Dobro and Steel, uh, I did a lot of, a lot more backup playing and a lot of session work for people. Um, but I didn't really do any commercial composing until I got to Austin, which is another weird irony because New York is the place to do it, New York or L.A. Um, but I was here and I had a guitar student who worked at an ad agency. 
and he was really into music. He and his, you know, they have like, you know, it's the right, the right, one is it, the art director and a writer, and they team up, and the two of them were really into music, and they actually have had bands on and off, and I've played with them, and, uh, but one of them had a job they were working on that needed music, and they were like, well, we're going to the music house for music, but you want to put in, a, you want to work on something too, and so I, I did, and I, I watched how it worked, and I was like, oh, I think I could do this. And I had just gotten some recording equipment. There's an engineer out in Dripping Springs that I owe a lot to. Her name's Gina Fent. And she has a studio, and uh, she was pioneering this kind of remote recording software that, so you could like do sessions with people far away. Uh, and she was like, look, you have a laptop, right? I said, yeah, I have a laptop. She said, Get. And they had just come out with this thing called the Mbox. It was the first small Pro Tools interface. So like... Pro Tools used to cost like $10,000. And before that, getting like tape and a deck and a, a board and everything was like, you know, $100,000. Suddenly you could get Pro Tools for like 500 bucks. You could run Pro Tools on a laptop. She was like, get Pro Tools. I'll teach you how to use it. You can help me. You can be one of my beta testers for this remote software. And I was like, I'm all right. And it was so generous. So I basically, I went out, I got this stuff. I set it up on my desktop. And I, well, I guess I brought it to her studio. She gave me like a two-hour lesson. I wrote a bunch of notes. And for the next two weeks... I would, do, I would work on stuff recording at home, and if I got stuck, I'd call her up. I'd say, hey, Gene, it's not doing this when I press this button. And she'd be like, did you Google it? <laughs> no, like, Google it. Don't call me until you've Googled it. And I would, and it turns out someone had had that problem. And I, you know, so I slowly just kind of muddled through, you know, and that meant I could do my own recording. And, and so from there, I was able to, you know, start doing stuff for other people. So when, when we talk about David doing this, I'm just to give the audience a little idea of some of the things he's done. Um, he's done stuff with CNN documentaries. Um, he's done My 600-Pound Life, was that right? Background music. Whataburger commercials, Frost Bank commercials, Milk Bone commercials. I mean, a ton of commercials. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, you've probably heard some of his work at this point. So how does that process work? They, you obviously have contacts with uh, the different creative houses and they'll say we need something with this kind of atmosphere or this uh, it's this very kind of it's very specific it's writing it's writing you know uh, it's writing to a, a brief they call it you know and and it there's different ways to do it uh, the hierarchy is there's you got the client which is you know Waterberg or whoever the brand and then they hire an agency and the agency is responsible for the look and feel of the advertising and all of that the whole perspective and then the, the agency is, is basically like they're, they're hiring, you know, they're, they're either doing in-house, or they're basically producing these little movies, these ads, and the movies need music. And so uh, as part of that, they either produce it in-house or they go to a production company to produce the film. And then the production company, somebody's got to put music on it. So they go either to directly to a composer or they go to a music house. The music house is making music in bulk. They've got staff composers, they've got freelance composers. And so basically it's come down this like five, six step chain to where someone says, we need 30 seconds that will remind us of the latest Billie Eilish song without actually getting us sued. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then, you know, they end up with like 30 demos that sound kind of like Billie Eilish, but not really. And your job is to figure out what makes it feel like that without actually sounding exactly like that. Because you can make a piece of music with all the right instruments at the same tempo in the same key in the same chord progression but if it doesn't have the you have to it's this incredibly ridiculous not ridiculous it's a very challenging psychological game of figuring out why did they pick this music in the first place what is it making them feel what is it doing for them and how do I create something that does that for them too and that's just being part of a lottery of a bunch of people trying to guess that now the thing about Austin that's nice is that it's a smaller place than New York or LA and a lot of times 
all that Whataburger stuff, all that Frost stuff, I just worked directly with the agency. And so my buddy, actually the same guitar student, basically he went went through the ranks and you know ended up you know uh, being a creative at McGarrett Jesse, and just you know the Whataburger stuff, not the Frost stuff. He basically just called me up one day and said, "We got these spots. We got like ten of them, and the temp music is all Lucinda Williams and Ry Cooter. So we thought maybe you." And I was like. Now that I can do. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's right, what cool. I like. So that was, that was fun, you know, and that was just like, it wasn't an audition. It was like, you got the gig, just go make this music and we'll put it in this box. So do you ever see the film or? The Ideally, video? yeah. The Frost, I mean, the Frost ones were, that those particular ones were just text. You know, it was just like yeah. print on a white screen. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you'll get, you'll get anything from just a, nothing to a written description, like a script to what's called an animatic, which is like a very, very crude stop action, not stop action, but a very crude, like animated version of what's going to be there to the final print. It just, it all depends. And even when you get the final print, you can write this piece of music where you've like scoped out, I want, okay, when the truck splashes in the mud, I want a cymbal crash. And you like work your fanny off for like three days, or you don't even usually get three days, you get like, an, an, like 24 hours. And you, you work your tail off to make this thing and you turn it in and they're like, man, it's really close and you're in the running, but we have a new cut from the client. And so now the splash is like a second later, which is like five and a half beats later. And so you're getting in there with like, you know, the virtual, you know, it's like you're in there with a razor blade, like trying to figure out how to make it still sound musical and natural and still landing with the splash with the, you know. So, I mean, that the puzzle making part of it is, I mean, everybody complains about it, but it's actually, everybody takes great pride in being able to like, you know, make it happen. So, uh, so. so talk to me about instrumentation. Yeah, you, you mentioned drums. You're, you're not a drummer. I'm not a drummer. Um, okay, so the first the first jobs that I did were actually here in town for a music house called Tequila Mockingbird. And their, uh, their whole model was that they were going to use real Austin musicians. So you'd do the demo, and then they'd say, great, well, you're, you're, if, if you won, they'd be like, okay, be here at, like, you know, 1 o'clock on Thursday. We're going to recut it with the band, you know, and so they'd go get the real musicians, whatever they were, and you'd go in and, you know, and re-record it with, like, real instruments and do the whole thing, and that was tremendous fun, you know. Um, the first thing I did for them was a Krispy Kreme radio spot. That's the first spot I ever won, and I still, I'm still friends with one of the guys who was a staff uh, producer there at the time, and, you know, we went in the booth, three of us. It was me and Billy Henry and uh, Alice Spencer, and we went into the booth, and we did the backup vocals, you know, for the, this radio spot. You know, and then we went in another room and we recut the bass, and then they had a real drummer. You know, I don't remember what order it happened, but it was you know it was great. Um, and but most of the time, uh, it's you do what you can virtually, like you program drums. And I mean, I can I can play bass enough to do bass parts, and I can play. You know, you put as much real stuff on there as you can. You know, the tambourine is your friend because everybody can kind of play the tambourine or the shaker. You know, it sounds like real percussion, and you know, I mean. Uh, I don't do as much of it as I used to because the jobs that come along where they want it to really sound like the kinds of music that I'm really good at are kind of unusual. You know, I have a friend, uh, Chris James, who uh, he is great at writing hip-hop and contemporary pop, and he does this all the time. Like, this is what he does, like, 24-7. Actually, not. He's got it really dialed in. He only works about four hours a day. He comes in, he makes a demo, he goes home, hangs out with his kid and his dog. But, you know, he... The guys that are really into like whatever's contemporary and have the patience to like figure out like what is that, what is that particular synthetic drum sound they're using this year, those guys, 
my hat's off to them because that's a whole art unto itself. Sure. You know, I feel like I kind of, I participate in that world kind of when, when it all lines up. I mean, I, I went through a period of like, oh yeah, like that's the gig. You try to sound like whatever you can sound like. And then eventually, it's just like any other piece of doing music or any other kind of art. Eventually, after trying to do everything, you eventually realize like, well, I am this person and this is kind of what I'm best at. And I can do the other stuff, but it's probably better if the job and the musician kind of line up a little more than they do for like those hip hop gigs. Nice. So um, I was thinking, you know, you said they a lot of times will come to you and say they want you to sound like somebody or as close as you can or whatever. Do they ever come to you and just say, we want an emotion? We want yeah, you know, anticipation. And, or well, the, the flip side of that is that, like you mentioned, that CNN documentary. So that was done um, for a, a producer uh, and uh, uh, well, a filmmaker, television maker named Jeff Keels. And I worked on several shows with him before we did the CNN project. So by the time we worked on that, uh, we had kind of a language together about music. And uh, he had reference music that he really loved, and it took me a couple of episodes to get past the reference music. Uh, and it's funny because uh, it was the, his reference music was from another guy. He's not it's Dave Wingo. He's not in Austin anymore. He moved out to L.A. He's doing great. But he's done a bunch of, he's done a ton of films, and he had done, uh, he had done this film directed by a local, well, local uh, filmmaker here in town. Um, I can't on his name, but he made Mud. He made a, he made a bunch of really great films. Um, Jeff, sorry, Jeff, spaceman, your last name. But anyway, uh, anyway, I, I about two thirds of the way through this project, I ran into David Wingo at Central Market. And I was like, you're killing me, man. Like, I've tried so hard to get away. I think these guys really love your music, but they wanted me to do it. And it's just, I've done everything I can to not sound exactly like you. Not that I could if I wanted to. And we just both thought it was pretty funny because he's had those gigs too, where he's like, there's someone else he's trying to get away from because they gave him someone else as a reference, you know? So, but point is, when I got to work on this thing with Jeff, this CNN thing, it was a long enough project and we had worked on enough stuff together that we got to the point where... I became the reference point. Like, he was like, okay, in the first episode, you did a thing like this. Can you do another one like that? But this time, I needed to feel more like this. So then we had a language of like, okay, he, would, he knew the kinds of instruments I was reaching for, the kinds of sounds I was going for, and we had a vocabulary. And that's the advantage of a longer-range project. Like, a film, an ad's only 30 seconds, and it has to happen, you know, so fast. A film, you might get five or six weeks or a couple months to work on it. TV show, you know, uh, with Jeff, like, I had the chance to really work on stuff for months before we started actually. So it can evolve. Yeah, I made a point of getting in and saying, look, I know you're not ready to do post-production yet, but I would love to work on some thematic stuff for you and make some stuff and just like give you something to, to react to so that we have like kind of a jump on this. And he thought that was a great idea. So by the end of it, he was hanging out in the studio all day and we were like, you know, going and getting tacos and sitting there and looking at the film together and going, okay, well, what about here? Like, he's like, oh, can you do one of those things? And, you know, we had a... I, I love working with him. It was almost like telepathic where like I'd play a take and I'd turn around and I'd be like, I don't think he'd be like, yeah, the other thing. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. You know? yeah. And it was great. So, I mean, that's really rare. And, and you know, you kind of live for those kind of opportunities where the collaboration is really good. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, that sounds like a fun kind of, I guess you say this is your side gig, but uh, that seems like a uh, cool way to make a living and, you know, kind of enjoyable to, be part of the creative process and something like that. Yeah, I mean, when it gets to be collaborative like that, it's, it's really great. I had another thing like that where I worked on 
Uh, they did a reboot of Ripley's Believe It or Not, and uh, I don't know if it's still running, but the first season, I wrote the theme and a, and a few other pieces of incidental music, and and the main, the main producer, another guy in town, uh, Texas Crew is the name of the company, and uh, and at first they didn't understand why I wanted them to come into the studio. They were like, well, can't you just send us some MP3s? I'm like, no. If I send you MP3s, I'll work for a week, and you'll listen to it for 10 seconds like it's something you pulled off of iTunes. I want you to come in, and like, we'll talk about it, and I'll play it, and we can, you know. And sure enough, like, I'd play something, and they'd be like, ah, I'm not crazy about this one. I'd be like, well, what don't you like about it? Like, well, there's that weird high noise. I'm like, oh, like, this one? And i pull down the fader. And be like, oh, now I like it. Like, yeah, see, that's why I didn't send you the MP3. So we got to the point where, like, they were looking forward to coming down to the studio, you know, getting out of the office. We'd sit around. We'd talk about the music. We'd, we'd, we'd design stuff together. It was great. Cool. So you and I have shared the stage a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I, I have to great. tell you, I'm a fan. I'm well, an absolute fan of your, your finger-picking blues style. Well, thank you. Uh, it's I, I yearn to know more about it, which leads to the next next question. You have another aspect of what you do. You've, you've uh, been an educator. You've been a, a musical journalist, as it were, and you have this wonderful uh, email program, Fret, Fretboard Confidential. That is fabulous. It is. Uh, I, I feel so lucky to be able to take part in it. Uh, kind of uh, give me an idea of how that evolved. Well, uh, you know, for all that I always wanted to make a living as a musician, when I, when I, I remember heading out to college. I had a, I had a wonderful teacher in high school, a guy named Jeff Wyman. Just a genius and a funny guy and really supportive and he's the one who got me into finger picking when I got really interested in it he's the one who like came in with a shopping bag full of records and said here I'm going away for a couple weeks you can borrow my records check out this guy check out that guy check out this Uh, and his his hobby was transcribing the Bach inventions for solo classical guitar (laughs) and I think he finally finished after like 25 years I mean it was but he he would play them for me and my, my best friend Peter who was also taking with him Anyway, I remember having this thought of like, you know, oh God, like I'm going off to college. I'm maybe going to study music, but I just don't want to end up a guitar teacher. You know, like I wanted to be, I didn't want to teach. I wanted to do it, you know. And, but, you know, once I was in New York and I saw these, uh, I was teaching in this, what happened? I was taking lessons. So I went to take lessons. Sorry, all these stories end up being longer than I mean them to be. But what happened was I got to New York, uh, I was staying with my sister in her apartment with her boyfriend and her, and I was flipping through the Village Voice, and I saw that Emily Remler was giving guitar lessons. Emily Remler is a jazz guitar player who, like many jazz musicians, died much sooner than she should have, but she was alive and well in the mid-'80s, and so I went and took a few lessons with her, and the, she was awesome, and the very first thing she said was, you need some guys to jam with. Here, I'm going to write down some of my other students' names. And so she wrote down this, and I just went down the list of the three, these three guys. And two of them were like, oh, nobody in New York has time to sit around and play for fun. That doesn't happen. But this one guy, Ed, was totally into it. So we started getting together, and we'd play every Saturday or whatever it was. And eventually, uh, I ended up taking lessons with a friend of Ed's, named Peter Einhorn. And they were both teaching at this place called the National, National Guitar Summer Workshop in Connecticut. And one of them, and Peter... 
said, oh, you know, they have an intern program. Like, maybe you could apply. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. But I didn't get around to it. And then, and then in the middle of the summer, I got a call. It's like, oh, someone got kicked out. I think it was the guy who, who got so impatient with a student that he duct taped the kid's thumb to the back of his guitar. Because <laughs> he was like, no, you stay in this position. And the kid was wandering all over the neck and finally just like lost it. And he taped his hand down and he got the boot. So they needed a teacher in a hurry. And I came up and I, and I, and I taught, started teaching there. But, uh, <clears throat> but so I, I got to Ed through, through Emily Rendler and I got to the workshop through, through Ed and his friend Peter. So I taught summers at the workshop and but the, the first summer I was there I met all these guys from the New York area and they all taught for a living nobody tempted like my sister and her friends her whole co- cohort of artists from a couple of years earlier than me they all worked they all did word processing and they worked the graveyard shift because they paid like $20 an hour which was a fortune at that time you know you'd work all night and you'd, you know you'd have the days free I mean if you were awake you know, they, these, guys, these people worked like two or three nights a week and supported themselves in New York as doing this, you know, working at these law firms downtown. And I tried it, and I was terrible at it. And so I met all these guys who taught, and I was like, oh, you can, I could teach guitar, I guess. So I started teaching, and as soon as I could, I quit temping. I was like, oh, forget that. At least I'm playing guitar, you know. So that's, what, that's how it started. And, and uh, after three or four years teaching in the summer, these guys decided, this was like a typical like harebrained thing that just happened to work out. They were like, we should have our own books. We should have our own method series. Like, you know, people, like why should, it was basically one of those like, you know, why should we have a concession for books when we can own the donut stand ourselves and make the donuts? So they were like, here, look, you're teaching blues. You write the blues book. Here, you, you're teaching jazz. You, you write the jazz book. And they got this distribution deal with Alfred, which is one of the big publishers, you know, Alfred, Hal Leonard, Cherry Lane. So they were like, you write the blues book, Beginning Blues Guitar. And I literally thought, I'll never make any money. This will look good on my resume. I thought this will like pad my resume that I've written a book, you know? And so I wrote this first draft. I just basically like, my dad had a, my dad was, was a computer engineer guy. And, uh, and so we had, a, we had a really early, we had like one of the first Mac Apple IIs, you know? And then he had a, a little Mac SE, one of the like little nine-inch screen. And he was decided, he, he heard I was going to write a book. And he was like, look, you can have my old Mac, you know? And I remember it was the Mac. And it had like a little, it, had, it sat on this, this disk drive that gave you an, 80, an extra 80 megs of RAM. And so, I mean, this is how old I am, right? But anyway, I got this computer and I wrote the book. I keyboarded it and I turned it into my editor. And it came back just covered in red ink, just covered. And I was like, it'll just be easier to write it again than try to edit this. And then I got the chicken pox at 20 whatever um, and I was quarantined like they don't let you out of the house like you're like you got to stay home for four weeks you know give me the chicken pots so I just sat down and I wrote it again basically and I turned it in they were like okay great this is your manuscript and they were like I was like well, what about when's the next draft that's my first draft they're like no that's your second draft I'm like well I got to change stuff I just like wrote that you know and they were like well there you go this is it well you can change a couple things if you want to a couple commas or whatever and so, like, that's how I wrote my first book. I had to lay it out myself. I had to print it out on the dot matrix printer. And then I had to, like, basically cut out and paste in all of the music examples and everything and, like, write it all out by hand. It was ridiculous. But that's, but then I'd written a book. And the book did pretty good. Uh, it's in its second, it's actually, in, it's been, it's still in print after, like, it went into a second edition, like, three years ago. It's been printed in, like, Japanese and Italian and French. Wow. And, yeah, in Italian it's called, you know, it's either Italian or French, it's called the Debutante de Blues Guitar. <laughs> Which I'm like, great, blues guitar for debutantes. That's, that's my audience. Oh, there's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Head. How did that evolve into the <clears throat> online site? 
Oh, well, that's, a, that's like a 20-year arc. I'll try to make it short. But <clears throat> from that, I, having the book helped me write for magazines. So I was able to write, I started writing for a guitar player and for acoustic guitar magazine. And I did a lot of writing for acoustic guitar, uh, which was great. They were great people. And then uh, right, when I moved to New, right when I moved to Austin, uh, I wrote like four or five books in a row for them. But I also was going to this trade show in, in California, the NAMM show, NAMM. National Association yep. of Music Merchants. And I was walking across the floor at the NAMM show, and this, this guy flagged me down. Uh, this guy with this huge corona of like salt and pepper hair and a goatee and this incredibly tall, like sort of slender, model-esque looking friend of his. And it was these guys, it was, it was Brad Winkos and, and Ali Hasbach who run a company called TrueFire. And it's now like one of the two behemoths of online guitar education, as far as I can tell. They just absorbed some other, some other really big online company. Anyway, Brad was like, hey, you want to make a slide course for us? I was like, who are you and how do you know me? Like, what happened? I, don't, I still don't know how it happened. I think because back in the day, in the 90s, guitar players used to have guitar columns in the back. You know, when I was a kid in the 70s, I would read them. I, I used to, I mean... I used to, this is, this is like, I don't think this is normal. I used to read all the guitar columns, even if I didn't understand. I read the pedal steel column. I read the session guitar, like how to do film. I mean, all of them, because they were funny and they were clever and the guys were smart. So in the, in the 90s, when 900 numbers came out, uh, Brad actually ran a company that you could call up a 900 number and hear the, the lesson in the back of the magazine played for you. So when I wrote these lessons for guitar player, they would be like, okay, now record the lesson so that we can have it on, on, on call. You know? So that's, I, th- I think he must have remembered me from that or something. So I went to Florida and I shot this slide lesson and then just kept doing stuff for him. So I did stuff for Truefire for excuse me, maybe four or five years and then I had my kids and I didn't leave the house for like four or five years. Uh, somewhere in there, I did a couple of homespun videos, you know, Happy Trom, Happy and Jane Trom. And that to me was like getting the call. I was like, to me, that was like working for Columbia Records. I was like, everybody's on Homespun. Doc Watson is on Homespun. You know, um, you know, uh, Bill Monroe made a Homespun. I mean, everybody, any, anybody happy could get to. He documented all these legends of roots music. So I was very excited to make something for Homespun. But the second one I was supposed to make, uh, I was living in Travis Heights, and it was six in the morning, and the taxi to take me to the airport to go to Woodstock, New York, was sitting in the driveway at our house, and my my wife and my six-month-old kid were both vomiting and I called Woodstock at six in the morning and I got Jane on the phone who I'd met and I was like Jane I don't think I'm gonna make the plane <laughs> she's like don't worry about it we understand we were parents and we're like, just come when you can and I think a couple years later I flew up there and I did it and it was great it was sort of, when I went up that time everything was cool nobody was sick and I got to have dinner with Happy Tron and John Sebastian which was, wow. a, which was a riot it was so funny and so great so anyway it all worked out but that's where the video thing I mean just Someone asked me to do one, and I was like, how hard could it be? So. Okay, and I have to make an aside here. I learned to play guitar to John Sebastian. Did you? Uh, so I'm just going to say right now, I'm in awe. Well, you're two degrees of separation. There it is. Thank <laughs> you. He was fantastic. Uh, the, th- the, most, the most fun thing about them was listening to them talk about Mississippi John Hurt. Because okay. I knew that they had made, they made a video like the style of Mississippi John Hurt. And John had actually hung out. He'd like gone down to Avalon after John Hurt had been rediscovered. And he'd hung out with John Hurt and his family and all this stuff. And so I said, you know, John Hurt, he's one of those guys, like, it, it, it doesn't sound hard. 
And they were like, both like, yeah, we know. When we got together to make that video, we were like, we know how to play like John Hurt. And then we went and listened to the records. And we were like, oh, n- wait, no. Like, there's so much, like, what is going on here? And just to hear those two guys say that, I was just like, oh, okay. Like, it happens to the best of us, you know. <laughs> so, um, we're going to turn the tables a little bit. And this is where we usually get to have the fun part of the show where we get to ask you questions about your Austin experience, as it were. Sure. Okay, so first time you came to Austin, what was your impression coming from New England? Uh, I actually came here for a gig. I drove with a friend of mine, two friends. We drove from New Jersey all the way through the South. We played in Nashville. We played in Austin. My friend had a sort of an audition for Watermelon Records. We played at Waterloo Ice House. And so uh, I was only here for 24 hours or less, so it didn't... I just thought, wow, there's a lot of trees on this street we're driving down, which turns out to have been Lamar. Um, But then I came again once Kate and I, my wife and I, once we were dating, I came down in March for like five days. And she was living in Clarksville. And I remember, like, she still thinks this is hilarious, but, like, uh, I got a map, and I was like, oh, well, looks like you're close to town. I can walk to all these things when you're busy. You know, and she's like, people don't walk in Austin. (laughs) I was like... You know, but look, you're right near, you know, whatever. So, uh, but so, you know, I remember I bought a pair of boots up on North Loop. <laughs> and I liked them because they were like, they were like, they were like beetle boots until you got to the calf. They were black, but they were completely unstitched on the top. And then going up the sides, they were stitched. So they were kind of like stealth cowboy boots. I already owned a pair of cowboy boots that I had bought in Dallas uh, years ago because my, my cousins live in Dallas. So I'd been there for a while or whatever. But, but, uh, and then I remember we flew, we flew a kite in the park in Clarksville. And um, what else did we do? Um, I think we went to see, we went to see music. I think we might have gone to Don's Depot. Oh, I know. We went, <laughs> we went to Egos to hear Dave Biller. Okay. And first we, went, first we went to a party with a bunch of musicians. I remember Gene Sinodinos was there because my wife and Gene were really good friends. They're still friends, but they saw each other all the time back then. And... Uh, and I remember, like, I never, like, I'm, like, the worst excuse for a musician I've, because I just never really did a lot of drugs. But I, someone had some weed at the party, and so we partook. And then we went, and I remember as we were leaving the party, like, everybody knew that I was thinking about moving to Austin. I remember Gene just saying, like, remember, there's no good Thai food, there's no good Chinese food, and there's definitely no good Italian food. Think twice, because she had lived in New York, too. Anyway, we went to Ego's, and we went to hear Dave Biller, and we were like, they used to have finger painting. We could do finger painting at Ego's. Like, they would give you paper, and I don't know. So we're listening to Dave Biller, who's one of the best guitar players in town, one of the best guitar players I've ever heard. We're finger painting, we're listening to Dave Biller, and we're like, this guy is amazing. And the next morning, I was like, okay, was he that good, or was I just really high? Because I don't know, because I don't get high enough to really know. And then we went to see him again. I went to see him again over the summer, and I was like, oh, he really was that good. It wasn't the weed. And I went to see him all the time after that. Like, if friends were coming to town, I was like, okay, it's Tuesday night. You're in luck, because we're going to go see Dave Biller, and then we're going to go see Red Bull Cart. That's our night. Just don't even, like, no question. That's what we're doing. So. So you decide you could learn to love Mexican food. Oh, I already liked, Me- <laughs> the thing is, I already, I already liked Mexican food. I already liked honky-tonk and blues and Western swing. I mean, I liked all the, I liked all the, all the Texas music, you know. Um, that was my impression of Austin, of Texas, was that's where good music comes from. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I already like Mexican food. And uh, yeah, the first summer I was here, like I remember there was a cover story in the Chronicle, like five burger joints more than 50 years old. And of course I had to go like investigate. Right? So I made, went to all of them. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it was so much easier than living in New York. The fact that I could come home from a gig and like drive onto the front lawn and leave my stuff locked up in the car and not worry about it was cosmic. I mean, coming home from a gig in New York it was like a two-hour project. Yeah. So, cool. So, Go ahead. So, okay, going along with your Austin experience and the changes, uh, five burger places older than 50 years old, how many of those are still around? Um, well, Sandy's is still here. Yep. And Hutz, no, Hutz just Hutz yeah, we is just gone, lost Hutz. which is terrible. That was when we were engaged. That was our that was our makeup joint. Like we had a big fight go after when we finally got the everything smoothed over. We'd go to Hutz. Um, Dirty Martin's still open. Dirty Martin's, right? I honestly don't remember what the thir- what the fourth and fifth one were. So, but two of the three I can remember are still open. So yeah. that's something. And you can now get good pizza here. Oh yeah, so. which one? Oh well, it depends what you want. But Home Slice makes an incredible margarita pizza, which is not, it's not, I mean, it's its own thing, uh, but it's amazing. Um, we used to go to Southside Flying a lot when we lived in Travis Heights, the original Southside Flying. Um, and Salvation, I think, might have just closed. But Salvation, the place just smelled like garlic. It was amazing. <laughs> um, we go to Little Deli up in uh, Crestview. is really good. I like that place. And everybody who works there looks like they were cast by a guy making a movie about a New York pizza joint. It's incredible. And then um, well, there's one other really good one that we go to. Uh, oh, Brooklyn Pie. But they just closed their location up here. There was a Brooklyn, uh, there was a few of them, but there was one up on Burnett, and it just closed, which is a bummer because they were really. I think they still have other ones, but that was our local one. So you know. And then I make. I learned to make pizza before all those places opened. So my kids actually are not shining me on. They actually do like my pizza the best. So. You know, that's like, you know, if we meet someone in the neighborhood or like, you know, we're, you know, we're, when we've gotten to be friends with someone like Kayla, it's like, oh, well, you have to come over for David's pizza. So, and I'm like, if you don't mind me turning up the oven to 550 for two hours, honey, then yes, I'll make pizza. And when can we come? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, what's, you know, now that you've lived here 20 years, what has been the biggest changes you've seen other than traffic, obviously, which... <clears throat> Well, um, I don't know if it's the biggest change, but it's, I've, I've been lucky enough to live in all of the hipster neighborhoods. <laughs> and, you know, most of them are having this thing where, like, you know, the bungalows are getting scraped and they're putting up these houses that are, like, within a fraction of an inch of what they're allowed to do. So that's just a bummer. I mean, I don't want to sound like one of those people who are like, now that I bought my ranch in Montana, let's close the gates. You know, like, I know people got to move here and, and housing stock is important. Um, but it is a drag. I mean, like, the, the little street that, that we lived on in, you know, I don't think it was like, it was like Oakland or Pressler or one of those. You know, it's like, right after we left, like, they scraped like two or three houses and they just built this stuff right down to the property line. And it was just so out of, so out of place, you know. So that's sort of a bummer and the traffic obviously is just murderous you know it's it's just so time consuming um and you know it's like I'm, I'm freelance i'm a musician and yet i have a studio outside my outside of you know not in my house so you know i uh i commute basically and i'm always asking myself like why why am i driving during rush hour when i don't absolutely have to you know, but 
you know, something that's, you know, there are, there are definitely a ton of positives, you know. Um, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, just from a musical point of view, there's a ton of great music here. There's, you know, the food scene really has changed in 20 years, mm-hmm. and I really like food. Um, so the fact that there's lots of different kinds of stuff is, is fantastic. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. Well, speaking of food, it, and it doesn't have to be food, but what what's kind of your go-to place here in town? Oh, um, I have a few. I love, there's this little Vietnamese place right down the street called Ya Ya Cafe, and I drove past it for years before I went, and the guy who runs it, this guy Singh, is an absolute sweetheart, and he makes the most amazing, he makes a lemongrass tofu banh mi that is to die for. I cannot reverse engineer it to save my life. I don't know how he makes the tofu, and I'm, I don't want to ask because it's like his thing, you know. But uh, but it's amazing. So I love that place. Um, and uh, as far as not not food, <laughs> um, I love the Saxon Pub. That's one. Of the, it reminds me. There was a place. There was a place in New York called the Rodeo Bar that I played a lot. And the Rodeo Bar kind of wanted to be a Texas place, but it wasn't. And so when I moved here, I was like, oh. Now, like I can go to the Continental, that's what the rodeo bar wanted to be. So I love the Continental, and I used to go see Red there all the time, Red Volkart. Not all the time, but as much as I could. But the Saxon, uh, I don't know, just like I like. It's one of those places like the rodeo in New York, where it's like I would just go to the rodeo because if someone was at the rodeo, I was probably going to like it. And the Saxon's kind of the same way. It's like if someone's playing the Saxon, I'm probably going to like it, you know. Um, and you know, and friends of mine play there, and I've made friends with people who play there, and so it's just a. It's just a place that I like. Um, you know, uh, I like that there are venues like that. Um, you know, it's not like a... I was never like a big like arena rock concert kind of guy. I like going to see... The kind of music I like to see doesn't get played in arenas. So I like that there are small places you can go and hear really good music. So, so Austin's theme is <clears throat> keep Austin weird. So what's the weirdest thing you've seen since you've lived here? <laughs> uh... This just happened a year ago. I have, a, I have studio space down on East Cesar Chavez, and uh, it's kind of noisy. So we had bought this, we had bought this, uh, I forget what it's called, MDF, this compressed board. We basically boarded up the windows in my room, and we coated it with this kind of, whatever that studio fabric is, you know. And there was a ton of it left over. And um, I was working in the studio, and, you know, it's Cesar Chavez is a busy street, you know. And I'm right across from like some shops and stuff. And someone knocked at the door. And nobody really knocks at the door unless they have like a session with somebody or something. I went to the door. There's this woman standing on the doorstep, completely stark naked. And just says, you know, do you have a bathrobe or anything? And I was so flummoxed. I just was like, hang on, let me see what I can do. And I shut the door and left her standing on the doorstep. <laughs> And I went into the closet and I found the leftover fabric from this stuff. It's like this scratchy, itchy, black, whatever. I don't even know if it's made out of real fiber. I don't know what it's made out of. And I just ran to the front door. I was like, here, will this work? And she just like was like, great, thanks. Wrapped herself up. I shut the door. I don't know what that was about. I don't know where she came from. I don't know what was going on. That was definitely the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me in Austin. That qualifies. And that's, <laughs> that's after living in New York City for 14 years. That is weirder than anything that ever happened to me in New York. So uh, kind of our final question is, um, so if somebody was considering moving to Austin other than saying don't, what advice would you give them? Oh, well, it depends. I guess it depends 
why they're moving here and what they're moving here for. Um, I would say um, have a summer home in Milwaukee or Toronto or the Rocky Mountains. Just be able to get out for three months of the year. <laughs> Which is what you do. Uh, no, I don't get out for that long. But, I, you know, we get back to Boston for like a week or two in the summer. And I just, you know, that's to me like it's, it's been fun and all. But after 20 years, I'm like, there needs to be a summer exit. But, you know, I know people who feel the complete opposite. I mean, Eric Betancourt, who I play with a lot, moved here from Maine. He loves the heat. He sits, he's like in his, in his house in the summer with the windows open, just like soaking it up. He just... He's got like years and years of Maine winters to, to get out, get the chill out of his bones with, and he just he digs the heat, you know. And I'm just like, it's all yours. You can have mine too. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. So David's playing here tonight. Uh, you know, obviously by the time we get this podcast out, people have already played. But he's also playing again in a couple of weeks here. Um, well, actually, I'm, if I can jump in, please. We are just so excited and happy to have you play the early Saturday show, the first Saturday of the month, here at New York Delta. So, uh, Annie's first Saturday afternoon, you come here, David, and he always has an excellent guest. And uh, we're very glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. I think we're taking this a couple months off in the summer because of scheduling and stuff, but hopefully we'll be, we'll be back after that. So, Well, you got a home. Love it. Say something now, Joel. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> um, and so, as Joel was saying, um, you know, David's going to be playing the early show first Saturday of each month, except maybe for a couple months in the summer when he's escaping the heat. Um, also, uh, plug your website. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, you can find out about shows at davidhamburger.com, and you can find out about my online teaching at fretboardconfidential.com there's a uh, there's a YouTube channel by the same name where you can see lessons for free and I have a monthly uh, a monthly online program you can sign up for I think it opens again at the end of March it's only open twice a year so you can come and check that out too okay and also your books are online at Amazon I assume or? yep you can get the books on Amazon you can get videos from Truefire or from Homespun and you can get um my most recent record at Bandcamp. Okay, excellent. Joel, do you have anything to plug? I, uh, yes. Uh, playing on February 12th with David Polkingham, who uh, just helped Patty Griffin win a Grammy. Nice. So that's always a fun show. Maybe I'll help you win a Grammy too. I just want to, like, be on the same stage with him. That'll be great. Pretty impressive. Well, it is. Excellent. Hey, hey, David, it was really fun having you here. I'm, I'm, I really enjoyed getting to know you and getting to know more about you. That's it, super interesting. So, oh, I think this has been really fun. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yep. Well, that'll wrap it up. So we'll see you next time on the Trail to Austin. Bye, y'all. <laughs>